Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you control the weather, you control the world. And Irving Langmuir, Nobel laureate at General Electric Corporation, he got this idea that we could put these little particles, whether it was dry ice to make the clouds cold or silver iodide to trick the clouds into thinking there was already ice there. And these little particles, kind of like uh, slow neutrons in a nuclear reaction, could cascade and make a gigantic cloud explosion. Hello, this is Dallas Campbell. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Patented. It's my podcast all about the history of inventions and the history of technology and other cultural musings. Thank you very much for your company. Now, I've got a book in front of me on my desk. It's a book I've had for a long time, and it was written in 1959 by Julian May, and it's called Show Me the World of Space Travel. It's a kid's book with some glorious pictures trying to imagine what our future in space would look like. Just flicking through, there's a section on satellite technology which is really interesting my favorite page just after that is a page called the space mirror and there's a lovely illustration of the earth in space and a giant mirror is orbiting it beaming a kind of ray down you know, deflecting sunlight onto the earth and it says forecasting the weather is one useful thing that a satellite can do but a space mirror would be able to do something even better it could change the weather. Famous German rocket scientist Hermann Obert has described how the mirror would work. It would be 60 miles in diameter, mounted in a pair of hoops, and by focusing the sun's rays on the Earth, the mirror would be able to melt ice and keep polar ports open all year round. It could warm the Arctic. Warming rays from the mirror could prevent sudden frosts. They might be able to break up a newborn hurricane or form warm air masses that would change other weather patterns. Small portions of the big mirror might be used to reflect light onto cities at night, causing an artificial day. And military men might be interested in using the mirror to burn up ammunition dumps. And if the Earth should ever be threatened by an invasion from another planet, yes... The mirror could be focused on the enemy space fleet at the right moment and destroy it completely. There you go. Hermann Obert, no less, the famous German rocket scientist. Um, it's a ludicrous idea, of course. Well, kind of ludicrous, but in the world of climate geoengineering, which is a real thing. I mean, we don't do climate geoengineering, but ideas and technology is being thought of and theorised around it. And there was one I read about recently similar to that, where you'd have a giant solar sunshade, which could block a certain percentage of the sunlight and, and help affect the climate. It's an incredibly controversial subject, controlling the weather, because, of course, whose hand is on the thermostat at the end of the day? And, of course, it's not something that we do now, and it's probably a really, really bad idea. But it 
does have a really interesting history of technology behind it. And that amongst all the crazy conspiracy theories like chemtrails and all the kind of general nonsense, there is seeds of reality. Cloud seeding, for example, the idea of seeding clouds with particles in order to encourage rain is a real thing. We've been experimenting with that and with various successes for a long time. But who was the first person to do that? And, and does that mean we can control the weather? Should we control the weather? How would we control the weather? Is it a solution to climate change? There's all these kinds of questions which are really, really interesting. And my guest today has, well, at least some of the answers to those questions. It's James Fleming, who's the author of another book which I own, and it's another favourite of mine. It's called Fixing the Sky, the Checkered History of weather and climate control. The key word there is checkered because it does have a really interesting and quite bizarre history. It's a, it's a really, really good book. It's a favourite of mine and I'm delighted uh, that Jim could join us. Jim Fleming, it's lovely to have you on the show. Your book, which you're just holding up to the camera, hold it up again. Fixing the Sky, A Checkered History of Weather and Climate Control. I read that book when it came out. I read it in, must have been 2010, and it has stayed with me, that book. It is such a fantastic book. I absolutely loved it. I'm thinking of doing an update because what comes around goes around. It's all very current still. It's really, really current. And, and part of the reason I, I was so fascinated with your book is because I didn't really you know, appreciate just how ingrained our obsession with trying to control the weather is. What, what do we call it, by the way? Geoengineering? Climate geoengineering? There's lots of different terms for it. I call it geoscientific speculation. Geoscientific speculation. The idea of like trying to control nature, the idea of controlling the weather in terms of rain dances and, and, and things like that, yeah. trying to use supernatural forces. It goes back a long way, doesn't it? Well, I had a section in there on Helios, the sun god's chariot, where his son Phaeton tried to drive it through the sky. That comes out of Greek mythology. And yeah. Phaeton really screws up royally, and, and he burns up part of Africa, and he, Zeus has to shoot him out of the sky because he's messing up the sun. And so tinkering with the elements like that is a very ancient theme. So these ideas are not new. And I know we're sort of we're talking about ideas of, of climate geoengineering now. Let's go back from the sort of ancient Greeks into, I suppose, sort of more sort of 20th century times, because there is definitely a political angle to it as well in the sort of Cold War. Well, actually, the sort of Second World War as well and, and into the Cold War, this idea of, you know, whoever controls the weather would control armies and control the, the sort of dominant forces on planet Earth. Yeah, that's what the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said in the 1950s, that if you control the weather, you control the world. Mm. And the point of the 50s was to try to develop an all-weather air force that could fly when the uh, enemy could not. Back in the 1940s in World War II, in the Battle of the Bulge, there was a technology to make the British airports uh, weather independent. And so they had a fog dispersal program. Churchill had given the Petroleum Warfare Department a whole bunch of petroleum that that was needed for the land invasion of Europe. But they were burning it in trenches along the British airports to make the lighted, heated airport that the RAF flyers could come back to. So they could fly in the fog and get back home safely. 
So there you go. Whoever controls the weather controls the world. The other thing in your book, which is lovely, is this idea of trying to make it rain. For, you know, there are reasons why, as human beings, for, for agriculture, we want to avoid avoid drought. So this this idea of, okay, how can we encourage rainfall beyond doing supernatural rain dances in order to appease the gods? So this idea of pluviculture. Pluviculture, right. Is that the right term? Tell us about pluviculture. Yeah, there's a book called The History of Pluviculture, and it turns out that technological fixes to replace the rain is a long-term goal of agriculturalists, as you said. But it seems like irrigation is a better answer. They were trying to make it snow over... uh, ski areas to make a longer ski season? Well, they still do that. They still have sort of snow machines. Well, that's what they decided, that snow machines are much better than airplanes trying to make the the natural clouds precipitate. So there is a technological fix for some of this stuff. Mm. But the ones that they were proposing were just way out there. And and most people did not understand the complexity of the atmosphere. And they thought cause and effect, we can do that and we'll have this kind of result. But it wasn't true. I think we can go back to the 1700s or the late 1700s, these first kind of experiments with scientists trying to make it rain. Just sort of talk us through some of those early ideas, if you will, of of how these people experimented with artificial rain. Well, the the main character of, of an early part of the book is James Espy, who was the U.S. national meteorologist. Uh, Right before that, he had the great idea that convection, heated, rising, updrafts, cool, and their moisture condenses, and the moisture precipitates. And he says, hey, if I could make that convection stronger, I could light giant fires along the Appalachian Mountains. I could make it rain on the East Coast. I could clear the air of all the miasmas. I could uh, allow for great navigation possibilities along the rivers. And so he applied to Congress for a patent for weather control. And what happened? Well, he became known as the Rain King. He He had a great scientific reputation in understanding convection, but he was mocked and is considered to be very foolish for trying to control the, the rains. So he's known as the uh, the rain king now. Why was he mocked? I mean, it was the science, was it good science? Like, did it work? Did it work? Tell me about some of the experiments. It was the thing that it was like, I have an idea, let's operationalize it. And the steps between having a notion and having a technology or an engineering are, are very broad steps. So he, he was not able to do that. He commissioned people to cut uh, woodlots up in the Appalachian Mountains and said, let's torch them every Sunday after church. And so then we could have our gentle rains on Sunday afternoons, and we can have our commerce the rest of the week where the rains have taken care of agriculture and, and navigation. And he didn't have it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> Did they try it, though? Did they have these, these Sunday fires to try and make it rain? Or... There were a few tests, but Espy was very careful not to be around when the tests were made. <laughs> so he, he preserved this sort of a plausible deniability, as they say. But he was excoriated, and, and one of the people that did it was an author, a, a woman author in a ladies' magazine who made a, a fantasy story about the Rain King of 1942. He did this in 1842. And she said, imagine in Philadelphia in 1942, the rain king's grandnephew doesn't want to have people come into town, so he'll just make it rain. And, and the theme of her story was that uh, if, the, if the rain was perceived to be artificial or somebody got their way with Mother Nature, then nobody would be satisfied. The alfalfa farmers would not want to have it dry. The cabbies would want to have it wet. The, the roads would get muddy. She still had dirt roads in Philadelphia in 1943. 
You touch on a really important point there, which is still an argument that's going on, I guess, when we talk about climate geoengineering now, and if we wanted to sort of artificially cool the planet down, for example, is the political angle of like, well, hang on a sec, whose hand is on the thermostat? You know, if it's going to be cooler here, then you create a storm there, or who gets to decide? We had a conference at MIT, and the icon of the conference was a giant hand out in outer space touching a thermostat. And it, it turned out to be the conference organizer had taken a photograph of his hand. <laughs> and go. the theme of the conference was geoengineering. Yeah. Can we do it? Should we try? The can we do it part was in the morning, and that was sort of very speculative, and maybe we could shoot up some fireworks, and maybe we could do that. And the should we try was our first attempt to bring in the social science and humanistic analysis of it. And it was very much uh, carried the day that we, sh- we shouldn't be dealing with this stuff. Well, no, for lots of reasons. And I guess that's exactly, you know, why such a big... Well, I don't know if it's a big conspiracy theory, but why there is such a kind of conspiracy theory, because ultimately that idea of whose hand is on the control, if we're controlling the weather, feeds very much into that us and them narrative, which is, you know, at the heart of conspiracies. One of the questions was, where would that thermostat be? Would it just be in outer space? Would it be at Lawrence Livermore National Lab? Would it be in Indonesia? Probably not. Would it be in, in the developing world? No, they wouldn't have as much say. And most of the people promoting climate engineering were, uh, were, you know, white Western male privileged. And and when I was, uh, I was on a National Academy panel about climate engineering, and we decided to change it to climate intervention rather than engineering. And I convinced Marsha McNutt, the president of the National Academy, that this wasn't really engineering. You couldn't get a permit. You couldn't make a safe technology that, that the public could use. I want to come on to a bit more of that in a minute. I want to go back in time, really, because I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea of, of people who are early on trying to engineer, in inverted commas, the climate or the weather. So we've got lighting fires to try and make it rain in the 1800s. And then I think in the 1930s, the Soviet Union sort of got involved in experimenting for political reasons and for agricultural reasons of, of like trying to make it rain. And, and I guess the beginnings of cloud seeding rather than playing with convection, actually flying up into clouds and seeding them with something in order to try and encourage precipitation. Ironically, it's still playing with convection because one of the early papers on this was called Chain Reactions in Cumulus Clouds. It was just in the early nuclear age. And Irving Langmuir, Nobel laureate at General Electric Corporation, he got this idea that we could put these little particles, whether it was dry ice to make the clouds cold or uh, silver iodide to trick the clouds into thinking there was already ice there. And these little particles, kind of like uh, slow neutrons in a nuclear reaction, could cascade and make a gigantic cloud explosion. Now, Langmuir and his gang had clearance to work on the Manhattan Project. They never did. But instead, they made smoke screens and they studied aircraft icing. And then after the war, they developed this idea of using dry ice and silver iodide as cloud seeding devices, sort of like putting in the slow neutrons into a chain reaction and making a gigantic result. The two techniques you can try to use are to make the clouds super cool. Super cold would create some ice or super saturated. That would mean that the water molecules already think there's ice there. And so ice generates the rain that we get. When you get up to a freezing level, you're gonna have a stronger precipitation. And so the dry ice And the silver iodide reduces the temperature, is that right? The dry ice reduces the temperature. The silver iodide is already a hexagonal molecule. The natural water thinks that it's already ice. I see. So these were being experimented in the 1940s. So you've got the Soviet Union, America. And were they doing it for 
agricultural reasons, as in we need more rain for our crops? Or were they doing it to, aha, if we make it rain on the armies, our enemies, then they won't be able to attack us? The, the first contracts were military, and they were very generous. And there was a, even a proposal to have what, what was called an all-weather air force, where some of the techniques could clear out the fog, other techniques could make the cumulus clouds angry and bring down you know, Thor's judgment on the enemy troops. And then after that, there were people who tried to adapt this to uh, proprietary cloud seeding for agriculture. So there's a whole batch of weather salesmen, especially in the arid American West, trying to sell cloud seeding technologies. There's a subtitle about charlatans in your book. I think there's a lot of charlatans kind of said, oh, I can promise you I can make it rain. I can make it rain. I can make it rain by waggling my stick. (laughs) Right. Did these early 1940s, 1950s tests in terms of cloud seeding work? What actually works is that you can modify a cloud. Right. You can do that with aircraft propellers. You could do that with chemical dosage. You could do it even with a giant fire, but you can't predict or can't control what's going to happen next. The cloud could dissipate. The cloud could intensify. The cloud could move left or right. I mean, Kathleen Blodgett, who was at General Electric, a female colleague of Langmuir, she said, Irving, you can modify a cloud, but you can't control it. So there's no way you can you can see the cloud and 100% guarantee it's going to rain. Basically, you can affect a cloud and it, it might do something or it might not. Well, Langmuir was a surface chemist. He won a, a Nobel Prize for some technologies to do with uh, chemistry. He was not a meteorologist. And typically, the climate engineers of today have one fixated idea that this does that. But they don't understand the, the currents, the complexities, the variations of the atmosphere. I think that's one of the things that people just don't really understand about climate science generally. It's just everything is dependent on everything else. It's so outrageously complicated. But actually, the thing that is amazing is the fact that of primary concern is not can we make our crops grow, it's it's how can we confuse our enemy. There's that quotation, I think I've got it written down here, 1958. This is Dwight Eisenhower. He said, if an unfriendly nation gets into a position to control the large-scale weather patterns before we can, the results could be even more disastrous than nuclear warfare. Oh, it wasn't Eisenhower, it was Howard T. Orville, Eisenhower's advisor. But it's interesting that, isn't it? Weather was called the most violent variable in human affairs. And I mean, for time immemorial, we wanted to seek shelter. We needed to find a regular food supply. We didn't have central heating. We certainly didn't have air conditioning. And so those are basic human needs. And then if you multiply that to the, to the limit, you end up with this idea of sort of a Dr. Strangelove kind of control. When people hear the word cloud seeding, they're, they're taken back. I think it was the Beijing Olympics or one of the, was it the Beijing Olympics? <laughs> yeah. And there was that news that, oh, that they're going to make it rain or not make it rain or do, or do something. Just take us through what, what that was all about. The Chinese Meteorological Agency is as a small city of itself inside of Beijing. They have their own building for, for weather control. And I was really impressed that they were putting so much effort into it, but I thought it was relatively uh, ineffective. They tried to uh, make it rain to get the pollution out of the air at Beijing. The Olympics went on pretty well, the Beijing Olympics, because the government had declared that the factories should shut down, that the traffic should shut down, that they didn't have that kind of input of air pollution during those weeks of the Olympics. That's what really did it. It wasn't so much the cloud seeding, although they did generate a whole bunch of Chinese artillerists who could put silver iodide in their cannons 
And on command, they would shoot up at the sky. But I don't think that's what did it. But did it work? I mean, I know because there's cloud seeding experiments still going on, like in in the Nevada desert. I saw just a quick Google. I noticed there was some people doing sort of cloud seeding experiments. So it definitely does work or has some some effect. In a former life, I used to work with the uh, University of Washington. We were looking at cloud seeding, not doing it, but looking at the effect of it in the uh, San Juan Mountains of Colorado. And it turns out that there seems to be certain days, certain conditions with upslope cold winds where it does enhance the snowpack a little bit, maybe up to 10%. And that's enough to get all the weather corporations, all all the water companies really interested in it. So there's a tiny uh, indication that it could work, but not in desert conditions, not in any condition, not with cumulus clouds. You need cold, moist air already moving up, and then there's some indication of enhancement. We'll be back after this short break. Gone Medieval is History Hits podcast dedicated to the greatest millennium in human history. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, a Viking Age bioarchaeologist and author. And I'm Matt Lewis, a medievalist and writer. Every Tuesday and Saturday, we'll explore some of the biggest stories, the greatest mysteries and latest research. We'll talk Vikings, Normans, Popes, Rebellions, and so much more. We'll travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and get under the skin of the ones you do know. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. One of the other big ideas is this idea of stratospheric aerosol spraying, go up to the high atmosphere and spraying, which is where the, I think, the chemtrail conspiracy theory comes from, which would actually act as a kind of reflective barrier, which would reflect some of the energy from the sun away from the earth, thus cooling it down. And there's sort of been lots of talk of that. I'm just sort of wondering, maybe you could explain a little bit better than I can about what that is. And, and again, does it work? And are there any experiments going on with it? Does it work? Theoretically, it could. Sulfate particles in the atmosphere, especially when they're uh, connected with water vapor, they can make the clouds brighter. That would reflect sunlight back to space. We we found that out when Mount Pinatuba erupted in the Philippines. Oh, that's interesting. So, so volcanoes act as a natural coolant, as, as it were, because they spray stuff up into the atmosphere. Yeah, and, and the engineering community glommed onto Pinatuba as a metaphor for what we could do if we had a chance to make an artificial volcano. So, so some of the talk was making an artificial volcano. There's a group currently at Harvard that's trying to do a small experiment to put some uh, sulfates in the atmosphere to see if it works. It's, it's a very dangerous idea because uh, basically we don't understand the role of sulfate chemistry in the lower atmosphere. This is the kind of acid rain and the kind of uh, sulfur, sulfur dioxide that makes Los Angeles air pollution so bad. Now we want to move that up into the stratosphere for global warming purposes. There's really no engineering to it. It's just a, a it's one of those crazy ideas. I suppose it's a crazy idea, but is it a crazy idea that one has to understand in order to decide not to do it, <laughs> if, if you see what I mean? You know, I always talk about understanding prediction and control. If you understand something like uh, LASIK eye surgery, you could engineer a technique that's reliable and make people see better. But if you don't understand something and you want to move into operational mode right away, then that's kind of like jumping the shark. 
Yeah. So there are no big scale, high altitude, stratospheric aerosol spraying programs designed. And again, it's like there's so many obvious political reasons why you couldn't do that. And I suppose that's why it feeds into the conspiracy. Oh, they're doing it secretly in order to control us. Well, the conspiracy is that some multi-billionaire could do it and not tell anybody. It'd be pretty hard <laughs> to get away with it, I think. The, the sulfate cannons could roar any any moment now, and, and we'd finally find out on it maybe on the news. There seems to be a lot of other quite sort of fairly esoteric ideas, just in terms of that idea of cloud whitening, changing the albedo of, the, of planet Earth, making it brighter, therefore it would reflect more energy away, therefore cooling it down. Having giant cannons in the sea that would spray sort of salt water up into the clouds that would whiten the clouds and, and be more reflective. Yeah, there's very responsible people that want to find a way that's not using the sulfur dioxide. And so there's a couple of your Brits came up with an idea of spraying salt water around the planet. One problem is it would take about 100,000 ships to do that. It would take all the spray possible. It may change the uh, marine uh, environment in ways that we don't understand. And so what happens with the atmosphere is that you do one thing and you, you, you kind of have an oops, you know, look at that. That's the thing. It's the atmosphere isn't isn't just on its, its not own. It's one it's, thing. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's inter, you know it's intimately connected to everything else. So basically, high altitude stratospheric spraying is not going to work. Cloud uh, sea cannons spraying things to whiten clouds isn't going to work. I did read a there was a really interesting story just talking about sort of the albedo effect, which is where there was a, a village somewhere in South America, I think, where they painted the glacier white in <laughs> right. order. Did you read that? And in order to stop it melting. But sort of basic physics means maybe we could control the temperature a bit. A glacier is not the planet. A glacier is not the planet. It's not that scale. So one problem that people have with uh, atmospheric science is the scale issue. You could air condition a glacier at a great expense. Maybe you'd have to run more electricity or make more aluminum foil or something. You know, the, the Norwegians tried to wrap a, a mountain glacier in plastic. And it was actually done by an art group that was trying to make a statement, not really do engineering. So I, I don't rule that kind of stuff out. I mean, you you can... We're definitely going to have an engineered planet in the future. I'm not a Luddite where I say no engineering is good. It's just that when this when this one technocrat wants to pull the lever for the whole planet, that can be very dangerous. We're going to have better carburation. We're going to have cleaner fuels. We're going to have quieter cities. We're going to have maybe more uh, sustainable air conditioning that doesn't run on fossil fuels. There's lots of technological innovations that could make for a, a better world, but I think they're coming incrementally, not not by fiat. Do you think, because there is that sort of tendency to go, okay, well, we shouldn't really worry too much about climate change because technology will save us. Technology will be our savior. Well, that wasn't, no, I don't, I don't think that's going to be the savior. I, I think responsible behavior is an important part of the mix. But what happens is that the, the geoengineers get, get an idea and they become sort of the, the cloud compelling Jupiter. They, they go on a bit of a hubristic ego trip. There's a, a megalomaniac in Germany who thinks that he knows exactly what the climate models predict. So he should be the advisor for the world governments that's coming. <laughs> and that he will be kind of like Jor-El, you know, it's like Superman's father. He'll be the wise, wise man in his group. They think that they will be the wise advisors for the planetary government on all things environmental. So there, there's that kind of level of hubris. There are some sort of crazy ideas as well. It's <laughs> thing, things like ocean seeding as well, and where you put, I can't remember what it is, you put iron something, iron filings in the ocean or something, and that breeds more algae, which therefore absorbs more 
CO2 and, and but there are some sensible things. Well, you know, you mentioned that, you know, we're going to live in an engineered planet, but things like carbon capture and storage is, is geoengineering in a way, rather than letting CO2 emit into the atmosphere, you can actually capture it and then do something with it. Carbon sequestration projects. I, I visited one in Iceland where they dissolve the CO2 in the water. It's really amazing this. So you've got kind of basically fizzy water, carbonated water, and then they pump it deep underground where geology does its magic thing under great temperature and pressure, and it becomes limestone. It, the CO2 is trapped. No, but I, I think you're right. The, the two parts of geoengineering were broken down into uh, direct intervention in the climate system. That was some of the crazy ideas. And then trying to uh, capture and store carbon dioxide, which there's a lot of projects, a lot of pilot projects. And one of the problems so far has been the scale of it, that you can do something in the lab. You can, you can do some of these artificial tree experiments. You could use some North Sea oil sources to put the carbon back in, but it's not nearly enough for the whole planet. No, that, you're absolutely right. Basically, we need sensible heads, it seems, rather than crazy ideas and orbiting space mirrors and that kind of stuff. The other thing that, that occurred to me was that, you know, even if you did have something like an orbiting space mirror, or even if you did have something like spraying, you know, stuff in the upper atmosphere that would be reflective, then what? Like, what happens when you stop doing that? Like, when you when you kind of rip the plaster off, as it were, what's going to happen? Like, do you carry on business as usual on ground with these tech fixes? But then you've got to presumably do them forever? Our uh, National Academy Committee came up with that notion that um, if you start something, you have to continue it in perpetuity. You have to manage it. So not just engineering, but management. I, I was a big advocate of saying that there's really no institution known to us that has been in business that long that could manage uh, carbon capture and safe sequestration for millennia. Uh, one of my colleagues had, wrote a book called Carbon Capture, and she was waving it around the committee. And I said, well, what about safe s perpetual storage? And she said, well, I hadn't really thought about that. I hadn't thought about <laughs> So, So th there, there are analogies between nuclear waste and carbon waste. And the authors of this study, uh, his name is Frederick Toth. He said, it's probably a more difficult problem to manage carbon captured waste than to manage nuclear waste because nuclear waste will uh, decay in time. But the carbon has to be kept uh, out of circulation forever. That's the thing. And, and like you say, it's, you know, people say, well, why don't we plant more trees? But you, you, need, you need to take the carbon out of the atmosphere and get it into the geosphere there rather than the kind of the biosphere. You know, that, that carbon sequestration project I mentioned in Iceland is such a tiny thing. That was a scale problem for Irving Langmuir back in the 40s, where he said, I can control the desert southwest. I can make it bloom, you know, like the Garden of Eden. Mm. And, and they said, well, Irving, you don't understand the scale of it. Like I said, he had never had participated in the Manhattan Project. And he felt like he missed, missed the boat. So he had sort of a hydrogen bomb level version of this. He wanted to go out to the Pacific Ocean and cloud seed down the whole Pacific and make kind of a bikini atoll kind of a nuclear scale test out of cloud seeding. And uh, he never got a chance to, to do that. But that was his fantasy. I think this subject says a lot about the human brain and our desire to try and control nature and affect nature, almost that we're outside of nature trying to yeah. control it. And, and we, you know, we find ourselves in a pickle now, you know, with climate change. We need to transition into, into clean energy. But there are other problems as well. And I think there will need to be technological fixes, but it's probably not going to be like the ones from my 1950s book. That's right. Much as I'd like to kind of see giant orbiting space mirror, maybe Elon Musk, 
I bet Elon Musk has probably thought about this issue. I wonder if he's... Well, he probably wants to move us to another planet or something. Well, he's, big, you know, he's but... trying to geoengineer <laughs> Mars, I think, so we can go and live on Mars. But I'm not Well, sure geoengineering about. Mars is a, it's a polluter's fantasy because you could raise the temperature of Mars by putting pollutants into the atmosphere. You can make a hell of a long, a great golf course out of Mars because of the, uh, the sand traps there. <laughs> yeah. and, and there's a lot of literature on uh, space fantasies yeah, definitely. I could talk all day about this. It's such a fascinating subject. Quick question that I've, I'm always interested in. And I like talking to climate people about. What do you say to chemtrail believers when they come up to you and go, aha, look, there's a secret government spraying program? Because I never know what to say I'm, other than there isn't. We had a chance to do that back. Uh, maybe it was right after my book came out. We had the AAAS, American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting in San Diego. And there were uh, climate engineering crazies in our panel. And there were chemtrails people protesting outside. And it was the first AAAS meeting. We had about 40 media at the press conference afterwards. And uh, it was the first, uh, I, I remember remarking, I said, I don't know who's nuttier, the people outside or the people in our panel. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I think I agree. <laughs> so you have to look it's at a it. a different kind of nutty. Yeah, it was a different kind of nutty. One, one lady th- said she always felt faint and went inside the house when she saw a contrail, con- condensation in the atmosphere. Uh, another guy on our panel said, well, let's shoot up sulfates and control the atmosphere. And so they were, they were different kind of nuttiness. There you go. I think that's a good place to pause. <laughs> hey, listen, Jim, I really, really enjoyed reading your book. It's such a fascinating tour, not just of the current status of, of, of climate geoengineering, but also the past. Really, really interesting. And you, and you frame it in, in so many different interesting ways with so many good stories. I think you should definitely do a redo. So that came out in 2010. It's now 2022. All major governments are talking about climate and what the heck do we do. I think you need to do a, a, a reboot. I agree. I mean, I was just t- telling my technical guy this morning that I, I was thinking of that kind of uh, inching towards a dive off the deep end. And it would be a reprise. I mean, some of the theme would be things are not that different. And then the other theme would th- be things really are different as the government is trying to control people and the lawsuits are percolating and there's a lot more players now. It's complicated. <laughs> Jim, thank you very much indeed for, for being on the show. Thank you, Dallas. It was, it was fun talk. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, then read Fixing the Sky. It's a great book. It's one I've dipped in and out of for, for, for several years. It's a fantastic subject. Really, really interesting. Really controversial, too. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed today's episode, I say it all the time, leave a rating, leave a review, tell your friends. It would, uh, it would help us out a lot. And, and I know everyone says that, but, but thank you very much. Coming up in September, we've done a little mini-series on the invention and the history of forensics, which is fascinating, which takes us all the way back to 16th century China, all the way through to, you know, DNA fingerprinting, etc. And it's been really fun. So that's something to look forward to. Don't forget, get in touch if you have a story or an idea you'd like us to cover. We love hearing from you and we'd love to do some of your stories too. So do get in touch. Next week, I'm doing an episode on the invention of Play-Doh, as in the kind of squidgy stuff. And I I wonder if you're like me, when you think of Play-Doh from your childhood, what do you think of? Because for me, it's always that smell. It's that there was a rather wonderful smell about Play-Doh, which in that sort of Proustian sense transports me back to kindergarten. See you next time. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive... 
and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.